Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. do the Badwater Ultramarathon and I had a 2020 crew actually came with me, you know, the, the TV program 2020. Um, they came over and did a documentary on me running it because at that time I was the first Kiwi woman to to do this race and um, people thought it was in a, you know, crazy, what the hell is this type of thing, you know, we're a pretty weird bunch of people that no one really knows about and so they did a documentary on it and that sort of really changed my life. I managed to, you know, after that I got a couple of book deals and um, got a lot of sponsorship and then I just went hard out, you know, and, and hustled my way back up. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number. 33444. You'll get it downloaded right away. So, welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Be sure to visit the website, drrobbell.com. Got a weekly newsletter that goes out, and you are here today, 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness. When you get done, I know you're going to love this episode with this guest, but be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Our guest is a fellow runner. I mean, she's an endurance athlete. Um, and she's she's a badass man. So for 25 years, I mean, she's done endurance events. She's raced everywhere from the Sahara to the Gobi Desert to Death Valley, Himalayas, Australia, and Europe. She is a Kiwi, so that's uh, that's definitely a plus. And she is a mental toughness coach. Now, what has attracted me to her has been how she has overcome many of the challenges and meeting life on life's terms. For instance, she has a new book that's out. It's called Relentless, How a Mother and Daughter Defied the Odds. Her mom had a brain aneurysm, um, major brain injury, and she's here today to share about that story. Um, she's had, uh, she's had, she's lost two babies basically in, in infancies, which she's going to talk about today. Um, divorce, financial ruin. You can see why we have this awesome guest on here today. She's got a great podcast, which I love. All right. It's called Pushing the Limits Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Lisa Tamati. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Rob. It's so cool to be on your show. And it was a real privilege to have you on my show a couple of weeks ago. So that was really cool that we've, we've connected as uh, mental toughness coaches on the other ends of the world. <laughs> well, I have a lot of respect for you. I look forward to learning from you today. When, when, you, when you think about mental toughness and then what it is that you do, like how, how do you define it? How do you define mental toughness? I, I think mental toughness is really about your ability to overcome whatever comes your way, whatever life decides to throw in your path, being resilient and being able to stand back up again. Um, for me, mental toughness sometimes conjures up the words like, you know, macho and tough and, you know, strong. But really, it's more of a fluid water type, you know, water against stone mentality for me. It's about 
you know, being able to go with the flow and when things hit you hard, being able to get back up again and again and again. And that resilience is a word that, um, you know, I think is one of the most important words in the, in the you know, in our vocabulary. Um, and that's for me is mental toughness is being able to get up again no matter what knocks you down and keep going, keep going, keep going. That's what mental toughness is for me. Yeah, I love it. I think there's, there's this um, the stigma of flipping big tires or doing <laughs> yeah. or doing stuff on your own like that's mental toughness, and that's really just physical stuff. I mean, but yeah. that but that resiliency, that relentlessness. I mean, when it, when it comes to your races, I mean, let's start with that. Um, whichever story you want to start with, but tell us one of the good racing stories about when your mental toughness really had to come into play. Cause I have a chance. Like it probably wasn't your best race ever, right? It was, it was one of the worst races. I mean, tell, tell yeah. us that story. Oh, I tell you, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been doing so ultra marathons now for a year, 25 odd years and done over 140 of them and done, uh, lots of, you know, all over, the, all over the planet. Uh, one of the, um, one of the worst ones of my life, if you like, was if we start start at the bottom, <laughs> and this is one of you know how to deal with failure. Um, so this was in a place called Niger, which is uh, deep deep Sahara, right? And um, it's uh, the second poorest country on earth, or it was back then anyway. Um, and this was a race that was 333 kilometres nonstop, and. When I did this, um, it was only 17 runners there, so it wasn't like some of the bigger races that you have where, you know, you've got lots of support and stuff. And this was run by a guy who was ex-French Foreign Legion, and he wow. really just – he was he was tough-ass in a bad way. <laughs> he, he didn't really care whether you made it or not, um, took your money and sort of <laughs> you, you had to survive somehow. Um, so the, the organization was atrocious and um, so that was uh, interesting um, and this there was a civil war going on in the country as well and um, to top it off I had a week before uh, so I was married to an Austrian uh, ultra marathon runner and we lived in Austria in Europe and a week before the race my husband my then husband says to me he wants a divorce so um I'm in a really good space when I went to this race. All right, so so just to recap, right? So your husband tells you a week before the race, I want a divorce. There's a civil war going on here, and there's only 17 runners in this desert race. Exactly. Okay. And, uh, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we so we arrived in, in Agadez, which is the city that that is there. Um, and you know, you're in the airplane coming from France. And you look around, there's only Red Cross workers. You know, it's not a good sign, really. <laughs> and you're landing at the airport, and there's upside-down airplanes on the, on the tarmac and lots of guys with big AK-47s standing there, and you're thinking, oops, <laughs> what have I got myself into? Um, and then the food that was meant to arrive with us somehow didn't arrive and disappeared somewhere, so we were left sort of without the right food for endurance running, if you like. And so... That meant um, we resorted to the local fair um, and we had like a goat. So we had to drive three days out into the Sahara from Agadez and we had this goat on the front of the Land Rover uh, that was cooking in the, in the sun, of course. Um, and you probably can tell where this one's going. But um, uh, I partook of this uh, poor goat and the night before the race and uh, got food poisoning <laughs> one hour into the race. So we started on this 333-kilometre race, which I don't know how many miles that is. You can work that one out. But um, 
and you've got food poisoning. So, you know, dysentery, vomiting, and you've got a broken heart. So <laughs> life's not looking too good at this stage. One hour into the race. <laughs> yeah, one hour oh into the goodness. race starts. Yeah, the, the hell starts. Um, and so, yeah, then I was really, really, you can imagine the, the dehydration pretty quick and, you know, the cramps in your tummy and your vomiting and dysentery every 10 minutes. It was really pretty, pretty bad. Um, so by the first night already, I was passing out and um, in deep trouble, basically. And I had this amazing woman come past, um, Eleanor, who was from England, and she found me unconscious on the ground, actually, and, you know, in the middle of this race, instead of just running on and leaving me, she stops her race, gets out her, you know, my, my sleeping bag out of my bag and tries to warm me up and tries to, you know, get some water into me and wake me up and, and so on and then eventually gets me to my feet and, and literally, you know, walks me into, for the next couple of hours, into this checkpoint. Um, and it's, you know, it's that sort of camaraderie that, that really, like, you know, sacrificing her race and, you know, her time. Um, she could have been much better and, and so on, but it was more important that she stayed by me, in her opinion. So, you know, that sort of uh, sacrifice is, is amazing. Um, and, yeah, this race turned out. I, I, I carried on for 64 hours. I got to 222 kilometres in this pretty horrific state. And had some scary moments happen, like, you know, you're running across the Sahara, running, walking, crawling, um, and, you know, you have military convoys would just come through out of the blue, like, you know, 20, 30 trucks with guys and, you know, with all the weaponry and all that sort of stuff, and you're a, a little girl running across the Sahara by yourself, nobody for miles around, you know, it's pretty scary moments, yeah, you know. absolutely. Um, or another time when that um, was a salt caravan route that used to be camels is now done with trucks, and you know you've got 150 guys on one of these trucks, and you know it pulls up beside you, and you're just alone, you know. And and the guy was actually they were just like, uh, what, where the hell are you going, you know, in French? And I'm saying I'm running to Agadez, and they're like, you know, it's a few hundred k's away. Um, you're going to die. Get up on the truck. And I'm looking up there and going, I'd rather take my chances with the desert. Uh, thanks, guys. You know? sure. uh, and being absolutely petrified that they just, you know, you could just disappear and be, you know, taken um, and never to be seen of again. And, and they did nothing to me. Like they just went, oh, well, okay, and, and carried on. But, you know, the fear in those sort of moments was pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. So that was probably the, uh, t you know, really one of the toughest, one of the toughest races that I've done. Um, and I didn't finish it. I only got to the 222. So I beat myself up for years because I failed. <laughs> and now I look back and go, what the hell? <laughs> you, know, you can be too hard on yourself. Too. So tell me, so tell me about that. So, I mean, cause again, I mean, to get dysentery, uh, you know, to be an endurance athlete like yourself, I mean, well-trained, even though you had life events going on one hour into the race. I mean, that's, that's major issues. Yeah. You make it 220 kilometers, even in that race. Um, why do you think you beat yourself up so bad about that? Oh, because I just, I, I, I had this mentality at that stage and this is, you know, over a decade ago, um, that, you know, to fail was, was an absolute. It wasn't a temporary setback, which is what I see it as now and something to learn from. I saw that as me being a failure, you know, and to compound that, the marriage had failed as well. So, you know, you've got all of that sort of going on and, um, 
to to add even more salt to the wound, the ex-husband actually, you know, was winning the race all the way through it and he ended up second, but, you know, so he was the big hero. Bastard. <laughs> Real bastard. Yeah. Actually, I've got I've got a documentary on this race, uh, so if anybody wants to check it out, it is in German with English subtitles, but you can watch the misery unfold. I'll put the link on there. You bet. So <laughs> it'd be awesome. Yeah. So uh, you know all of that sort of going on, and and you know I just saw that as a failure instead of seeing that as, you know, that's ridiculous. I mean, how many things can go wrong in one in one sitting sort of thing, and. Um, you know, you can't control. What What I understand now is that you can prepare the best you can. You can, you know, prepare for your event, your race, something in life, and then life can still come at you with something completely out of the left field, and you can't, uh, you know, take care of all those variables. It's just not within our human bounds to do that. And so you can't beat yourself up when things do go south, and especially when you are pushing up against the limits of what's humanly possible. You know, things are going to go pear-shaped quite regularly. So you, you have to understand that and not go, well, I'm a useless person because of it, you know? So when did you, um, I guess, how did that experience there, how did that one help you in another race? And then when did you, when did you finally reconcile it? When did that finally, you know, that's not the best mindset to have, that it's all or nothing? Yeah, I think, you know, after that, we, you know, I went through the divorce and I had to, um, so I was living in Austria and I, so I lost not only my husband, but my the house I was living in, my business, I lost everything basically and came back to New Zealand at the age of 38 with a backpack. Um, and that was then a very, another very humbling experience, you know, to have lost everything that you'd built up over years, because I'd been there for 13 years, I'd, I'd built a life there to come back with nothing and to be back in mum and dad's bedroom in their house, thank God I had them, um, you know, that was that was really tough. And what I did then was that I, I at that time, I actually qualified for the Badwater Ultramarathon, which oh, yeah. you guys know, <laughs> amazing race in America, uh, through Death Valley. And at that time, I was like, I had no money. I just got back to New Zealand, and I'd wanted to get in this race. I'd applied for it, you know, and, and wanted to do this race for years. And finally, I get a, a spot in this race, and then I've like considered confronted. Well, it's going to cost a lot of money to go over there from New Zealand, and I don't have that wherewithal, you know, to do that. Um, but I just started telling people about what I was, you know, this race and what I wanted to do, and people came on board and they got in behind me, and my whole town got in behind me and raised all the money that I needed to get over there. Sponsors came on board and so on. It was an amazing experience for me to be um, supported by my hometown after being away for so long and to have something finally start to go right in my life. And so I, I got to go to Death Valley and do the Badwater Ultramarathon, and I had a 2020 crew actually came with me, you know, the, the TV program 2020? Yeah. Um, they came over and did a documentary on me running it because at that time I was the first Kiwi woman to, to do this race, and um, people thought it was in a, you know, crazy what the hell is this type of thing, you know, we're a pretty weird yeah. bunch of people that no one really knows about. And so they did a documentary on it and that sort of really changed my life. I managed to, you know, after that I got a couple of book deals and um, got a lot of sponsorship and then I just went hard out, you know, and, and hustled my way back up the ladder financially and and clawed my way back 
uh, emotionally and healed all the wounds slowly through through running and through amazing people that got behind me and picked up the pieces basically. So doing the the Badwater Ultra Marathon, I did did it that year in thirty uh, was it thirty eight hours fifteen, and I was tenth home I think in the woman and um, and I was just it was just amazing. So the following year I went back and did it again and then I yeah the, then I went on to do lots of other sort of crazy cool stuff. But it was awesome. So. Um, a lot of people, when they have shame and guilt and all the head trash that we have going on, like they don't want to share that stuff, <laughs> but you had pain obviously going on You're back home, not in the spot you want to be, but you share them what your vision wants to be. And just by sharing that, that allowed people then to get behind you. Oh, it's amazing what happens when you are enthusiastic and passionate about something and you share that passion that people amazed me and they, they wanted to get on board. And I've seen this happen again and again in my life. You know, when I'm when I'm passionate about a project and, and I'm just bubbling over with enthusiasm, um, people come on board and they want people want to be um, they want to people have people that are doing crazy things or or being a leader or this is the way we're going, guys, and come with me. You know, they. Um, I think that that's um, something that's baked into us. That you know, if somebody is enthusiastic and, and passionate about something, we are attracted to those types of people. Um, and you know, vice versa. I needed that support and that that encouragement. And you know, I learnt very early on from doing a couple of those documentaries I've done previous to that one, even um, in in writing my books. So I have. Uh, um, well, the third book's coming out shortly, but um, my first two books, uh, I shared all the crap, basically. I shared the good, the bad, and the ugly as it was, and there is nothing more cathartic to your to your mind than to actually to share all the shit. When you share the good and the bad and, the, and just how it is, not glorified and not, you know, I'm amazing – but rather, this is the stuff I, I managed to overcome. This is where I failed. This is, it's freeing because you are allowed to be who you are. And when you find acceptance from people, you know, reading your book, reading your story, people writing to you and telling them how it's changed their, their lives and their perspective of what they're capable of, then you realize that being open and, and honest and vulnerable and real and raw is far more powerful than being full of BS and, you know, only showing the shiny side of life. You know, I I, I don't believe in only showing the shiny side of life. It's, it's, it's not going to help anybody, you know, it's it's better to be real. And sometimes it's, um, you know, it can be embarrassing because you've done some dumb stuff or you've failed at something majorly. But um, I try to be as open and transparent as possible in, in everything that I do. Can we just call maybe the next book? I mean, the first couple of books was running hot and then running to extremes. This next book you got is relentless. Maybe the the book following this is just share your shit. <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> maybe we can co-author that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, that's how we connect with other people is through our brokenness, through yep. the cracks that we have in our life. Absolutely. Um, the question that I want to ask about is is your new book like relentless can you talk to us about your story with your mom and 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 how this has has come to be yeah so um four years ago now nearly four years um 
my mum, who's been like the rock, you know, the one that's always helped me through all the, the, the crap I've been through, and it was always there for me. Um, she had a major aneurysm, which is a bleed in the brain. And when this happened, uh, she was misdiagnosed at the hospital, you know, disastrous medical situation um, that we had initially. And she was in a coma for, for weeks and they didn't think she'd survive. And when she did finally, you know, stabilize and come out of the coma, she was massive brain dam damage. So she had not much over a vegetative state. She had a little bit, a couple of words. She had um, no ability to control any of her bodily functions or her movements. Um, she had no memory. She had no, um, just, yeah, but basically life was pretty, looking pretty grim. And didn't, didn't uh, know who you were, couldn't? No, no idea, okay. just lights on but nobody home. And I was just, you know, as you can imagine, absolutely devastated. And after the initial um, muck-up that we had in the emergency department where they didn't diagnose her, I sort of realised, you know, if I if I have to be on the ball because we'd left her there sitting there for six hours while the doctor told us she had a migraine and we didn't do anything about it because we didn't know what the hell we were asking or what was going on and I actually had a paramedic friend who who had crewed for me in Death Valley and I said can you get up here because we're being treated like idiots and there's something major wrong and she came up and she just took one look and said she's having a, a, an aneurysm or a stroke or something and went and got finally this doctor to get a CT scan and then you know and after that initial horrific situation I was like I've got to research I'm going to find out everything I'm not going to be caught short again and I'm going to keep my eye on every doctor and you know <laughs> I'm going to know everything so I just went into research mode you know overkill research mode and was just hyper vigilant and trying to understand what was going on with her and after three weeks she stabilized um, and she had nothing and then she was three months in hospital and she wasn't improving at all and the doctors were like you know she's not ever going to do anything again like, let's be real she's 74 years old the brain damage is huge um, you know make her comfortable and there's one thing I don't do comfortable you know <laughs> I don't believe in comfortable yeah. comfortable is not a good place for anyone comfortable means you're on your way out and I was not ready to fight uh, you know to leave that fight um, and you know they're trying to get me to sign non resuscitation orders and all this sort of stuff and I was just like not having it and I had to really fight to be able to bring her home. Like after three months, they said, look, we're going to put her in a rest home. She needs 24-7 care. You're never going to cope with her. And I actually, you know, argument after argument, trying to get her home. And they said, you won't, you won't cope and it will be a disaster. And so I, I actually brought my books in and I threw them at this uh, social worker. And I said, this is who I am. And I'm not, you know, I'm not leaving my mum in a, in a institution. And I'm taking her home so you better get used to it. And he wouldn't did have you, it. Did you sign the books? <laughs> with a with a with some words that you probably don't want to repeat okay. on the podcast. <laughs> and I actually got um he he wouldn't relent and I actually ended up getting my brother who looks like the rock, you know, he's a bit like Dwayne Johnson. And he came in and um <laughs> um we got what we needed. We got mum home at the end of the day and we had the resources which was just a caregiver in the morning and the evening and while she was uh, in the hospital I'd been studying um, something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy which is what they use for dive accidents mm -hmm. and I'd 
um, done, done all this research on how beneficial it was for brain injury, and I'd studied under a Dr. Hart, who has a, a, a you know, world-leading hyperbaric specialist in America, um, and I was like, this has got to be, you know, this is something that I can do, and I was trying to get the doctors on board in, in New Zealand, and they, you know, they weren't having it, and it was a load of rubbish, and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so I just went ahead anyway, and I worked out when she was in hospital, I I've done a lot of running at altitude in the Himalayas and so on. I know what happens to the body when it doesn't have enough oxygen. And I'd, I'd had um, uh, a hypoxic brain concussion from using an altitude um, tent at home mm. before. And uh, I'd been using this for a race that I was doing in the Himalayas. And I'd gone up too high too fast and ended up knocking off my brain cells and getting a brain concussion and having all these infections pop up in my body because when you don't have enough oxygen that's what happens and I was seeing these things in my mum and I'm going hang on she's not getting enough oxygen so then my mind started to tick over I think she's got sleep apnea which is when you stop breathing at night and yep. the doctors wouldn't have any of it they wouldn't let me test for it and so I, I brought in a consultant over the top of the doctors anyway an outside consultant uh, he came in did the tests and it came back severe sleep apnea so she was knocking off her few brain cells that she had knocking them off every night and so when when I had that breakthrough and she started to have little bits of improvement then I thought what else can oxygen do so that's when I discovered a hyperbaric and then I got her out of the hospital and I had to find access to one because we don't have them here per se in, as clinics you do in America a lot more um, and I went to a commercial dive company and I said, can I use your chamber? This is the research. This is my mum's situation, etc." And these amazing people said, yep, you sign a medical waiver, a legal waiver, sorry, um, and we'll let you do it. And so I got her in there. We did 33 sessions in this chamber. They gave it to me two hours a day, five days a week. And how far, away, a how far away was that from where you lived? This was literally five minutes down the road oh, in, wow. a, in a dive so I was extremely lucky and extremely privileged that these guys let me use it because they are, you know, they could have, you know, said no. And after 33 treatments, my mum started to start reacting more. There was more intelligence behind her eyes. She had a couple more words. She had little bits of memory, and I realised it was working. And then the, the chamber got taken off overseas on a contract, so I lost my access to it. So then I mortgaged the house and I bought a hyperbaric chamber and I um, got a hyperbaric technician guy to help me install it and so on. And then I put her through over the next couple of years another 250 sessions, which is really, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot to do. Um, and as she started to wake up, because this hyperoxygenates the body, creates more stem cells, it's amazing therapy. Um, and then I started to study functional neurology. I studied, uh, you know, neuroscience and physio and uh, diet and nutrition for brain health and, and anything I could possibly do. And I stayed one step ahead of her. And as she started to wake up and have a little bit more of things, then I intensified the training. And I worked out a, a, an, about an eight-hour program a day that I would put her through. So real quick, so where are the doctors and all this stuff? Are they saying, like, after after those initial 33 sessions, I mean, do they see some of the improvement, or are they just like, no, nah, you know, you're still wasting your time? Yeah, absolutely. No, they weren't interested. They weren't interested at all. Um, and 
once you're out of the system, you're out of the system, so right. you don't get to see the, the surgeons and so on. Um, and so you only ever see your GP. So we had no support uh, outside of this, you know, um, what I was doing. Um, and I just stayed one step ahead of her. And as she started to come back, I just tried to learn the next step in her re rehabilitation. And we're talking thousands and thousands of hours of retraining her brain, all her balance systems. So there's something called neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to adapt and change and, and grow, even in late adulthood, which, of course, is much harder than it is in childhood. Um, and I had a couple of books, um, by one by Dr. Norman Deutsch that showed me that it was possible and that's all I needed that, that it was possible and so like you know the patients that I had to bring to bear to train her it took me 18 months just to get her to be able to roll over in bed just to roll to the side that that's how long it took me took me a year just to be able to get her to sit without falling over um and now, four years later, my mum is absolutely normal again. You would not know she has any sort of a brain injury. She is, um, she's got her full power of attorney back over her life and her finances and her rights. Wow. She's got her full driver's license. She's she walks a couple of kilometres a day. We we train every single day. Um, she's she's a, she's my walking miracle. And now the doctors are asking, what the heck did you do? A few. A few of them, you know, um, and I get to talk at some medical conferences and things like that. And it's a really a multi-pronged approach. But the, the, the thing that's really important to take away here is that if I hadn't been a stupid, crazy athlete that knew what the mind and body is capable of, far more than what the average person would understand, and you'd understand this too, you would have seen things and people do amazing things. So I, I understand that what the average person believes is possible is nowhere near what is really possible and the lessons that I learned while doing all these extreme events and the setbacks and the failures and all of that sort of good stuff really set the stage for me to be able to help my mum I don't think I would have had the tools to be able to fight like I had if I hadn't been through that and what was it what was the yeah? What, what were the what were the major tools that you've learned that helped you with this process? Um, yeah, like the very first one that you said that was resilience. Sorry, that's mum ringing on the phone in the, in the background. Let's get there. her on it. <laughs> She'll have to wait for a minute. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's things like resilience and overcoming uh, all the naysayers. Like we will all be faced with people telling us we can't do things. And if our tendency is to just accept that at face value, you know, when someone judges you and, and people have this like, you know, as a seven year old, maybe your teacher told you you were dumb. And so now today as a 30 year old, you still think you're dumb, you know, like ridiculous. But these things are programmed into our head. And our subconscious is, is running the show a lot of the time. And we need to sort of go in and reprogram and look at some of the beliefs that we have about ourselves and start to do the hard work, do the deep work about changing some of the programming that we were that were put in when we were young. Um, and being able to stand up, I'll have to get the, the <laughs> Mum's very um, persistent. Um, sorry about that, guys. I'll tell her off afterwards. <laughs> um, so I wonder where she gets that from. Oh, yeah, she's very persistent. She'll be like, why are you not here for training? Uh, I'll be like, I'm coming in 10 minutes, Mark. <laughs> She's keen to get to the gym, probably. Um, 
so it's yeah, it's about resilience and overcoming all of that and being able to just keep taking one step after the other. I think that's one thing that ultra marathon teaches you more than anything else is no no matter how big and long and far you have to go, if you can just focus on pulling in your focus into the next you know hundred steps to the next power pole and the next marker that you see and and not letting that whole thing overwhelm you. I think that's uh, a really important lesson. Lisa, where do you think most people then, because it makes sense, right? I mean, logically, yeah, man, one step in front of the other. This step is all we got, right, this day. But where do you think yeah. most people mess that up? I think um, I think we all look too far out ahead for starters. We... we um, have an impatience to get to the end goal, and I'm, I'm certainly impatient. But if you, if you like, when I, I ran through New Zealand at one stage, which is I did 2,250 k's in 42 days, and I remember standing at the start line on that, and I've been so busy with uh, preparation that I actually hadn't thought about running 500 k's a week. And I got to the start line and I had a panic attack, a literal like, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this. And I had a big cry and I went to my mum at that stage, just, you know, before her thing, um, and I gave her a big hug and I said, mum, you know, oh, what the hell have I done? I, I'm I, 2,200, how am I going to do this? And she just said to me, whoa, 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 you don't have to do 2,250 k's today. Right. You just have to get to that power pole. You have to get out of the start blocks and get through the first half an hour. That's all I want you to focus on, getting your crew going, getting everyone moving, and let's just concentrate on these tiny little steps. And that was the best piece of advice anybody could ever give me. Hold your focus really close. The tougher things get, the smaller the focus needs to be. Right. And you can, when you're feeling a little bit better, you can take a peek up at how far you still got to go so that you can gauge your energy that you're going to require, but then bring it back in as soon as you start to get into that panicky mode and that panicky situation. Um, and and that, in that way, you can break down the longest distances and then you'll suddenly, you'll turn around and you'll go, hell, I came a long way and I managed to. And I think a lot of us are just overwhelmed at the hugeness of some of the tasks that we try to undertake and then we give up. And I think also we have, like I said before, the subconscious programming that has been downloaded in our childhood mostly and in our young years that we didn't get to filter properly and put in our mind. We didn't choose it. You know, it was done for us. It was done through our peers and our community and our parents and the stuff we experienced. And a lot of that crap is not serving us today as who we are now. And and I'll give you a, a quick example. When mum was a little girl, she had to get up on stage at school and do a speech and she froze and she couldn't get a word out as, you know, as you do and from that moment on she was never ever would speak in front of a crowd again now when she had the aneurysm all of those memories were wiped and when now I get her to speak on stage with me when I go around doing my speaking if she's sometimes she comes with me and I get her up on stage and now it's no problem for her to speak to 500 doctors in a room does she does she remember her past or did that wipe it, 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 a lot of the things wiped, a lot of the negative things wiped. So she has uh, now got her childhood memories and things back, but the 
the the the programming's not there. Yeah, none of the scar but tissue, huh? The programming. Yeah, it's like she doesn't have that fear of getting up and finding people and speaking anymore. That is gone. Which in which in other words was never really a thing. It was only a construct in her belief system that she couldn't get yeah. up and speak publicly. So that that emotion that she had as a little girl standing up there, that's what kind of cemented then that belief, right? Like yeah. Exactly. And that emotion on the power of that emotion was gone and that, that, that programming was gone. So that's just a really uh, simple example of, you know, we have all this programming and we sabotage ourselves, you know, like we, we read help, self-help books, we listen to great podcasts like this one, and then we still go out and do the shit that we don't want to do. And we, we were, you know, and I do too. And I'm like, why am I doing that? And if I go back and I start to look at where is this, this thing coming from, and you'll find somewhere in your past is a belief system that you are sabotaging yourself, you know. Um, and so it's going back and doing things like self-hypnosis and affirmations and hanging around people that are going to push you in the right direction and change the way you think over time and slowly. Um, and there's a whole lot of techniques for reprogramming your subconscious, but um, yeah, it's really important that we understand that we are not the beliefs that were programmed into us. That is not who we are today and doesn't have to be. With with your book, Relentless, um, even with your mom, that wasn't the toughest experience you've ever been through, was it? Well, it was bloody tough, that's for sure, you know, like, um, but I've, um, I had a, a situation just this, um, well, 2019 now, so in March. So for years, uh, my husband and I have been trying to have have a family, and um, I've done a lot of damage to my body. My kidneys were um, damaged from all the running that I'd done, and I met my husband quite late um, in life, and we started trying immediately for a family, but we weren't having any luck. And then we finally got pregnant um, when I was 46, and which was a miracle, but then I lost the baby, um, and then I, you know, we did everything possible. We, we had no luck. And then last year I managed to find a surrogate mum. And this was a, a wonderful lady who had two children. Her and her husband, you know, said that that'd help us. So, um, we were ecstatic as you can imagine. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, not, that's um, not easy to find. No, that's an amazing woman, amazing family actually. Um, and, the first time we tried, uh, she got pregnant, um, and that we were going, we were so ecstatic, and we were just like over the moon. And she, you know, she was only thirty years old, so young and healthy, had two beautiful children already. Um, and then we got um, to the six months, and our little boy Joseph was born early, and he had um, an extreme case of uh, spina bifida, so he had. Uh, you know, the back part of his brain wasn't developed. His spinal cord was outside of his body, and and he only survived for two hours. Um, and and that was that was, you know, just just horrific. It was it was the hardest experience to go through that because, you know, we we wanted this for so so long, and 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 to also put um, another couple through this. I felt hugely responsible um, the, for the pain and the suffering that they had experienced that our little boy had gone through, um, and that very nearly broke me for, for a while. And I started to question because, you know, after my experience with mum, I sort of felt like vindicated that when you go all in, 
that you know, you can beat the odds, yeah? And, and I'd proven that with mum. Right. And by the same token, I'd gone all in on this baby journey and I'd caused all the suffering and our little boy hadn't made it. And I was like, did I do this, you know, through with my head through the wall mentality that, you know, had a positive outcome in one case and has had this terrible outcome in the second case. And I really started to question, is it okay to go all in and to be so, so you know, strong and we're going to do this? And did I cause all the suffering? And, and then I just had to really um, take a good look at myself and go, no. Once again, I go back to that, that story about Niger. Um, you can prepare and do all the things that you, you know, think is, is the right thing to do and still it can all go to custard because that is life and you can't go around carrying the guilt of that because that's not, that's the universe's decision or whatever, whoever's decision, you know, you, you can't have known the consequences of, of those actions and you can't go through life being scared all the time. And so, you know, we've all, and we found the blessings in, in this terrible situation. We still found the blessings, you know, like little things like my husband is a changed man. Like he, you know, was always, oh, if we don't have a baby, it'll be okay, you know. And he didn't really know what he was going to feel. When, when Joseph was born, you know, he just knew he wanted to be a dad. And he he, since then, he's also known that, Life is so precious, and my our son didn't get to experience all this. I'm going to live full on. So he's, you know, gone and taken a promotion in his job. He's a fireman, and he's now an officer, which he wouldn't do before. You know, he wouldn't step up and take that leadership role because he didn't feel worthy enough. Now he's like, bugger it. I'm going to do it. Um, you know, I have um, my surrogate parents are like family they're like sisters and brothers to me now their children are are my children you know like we we were close as a, we've, we've gained a whole family you know so there are beautiful things out of this experience um you know and that's what you've got to take away from it and you've got to let it make you stronger and not break you that is your decision that's the only decision that you get to make in life is what you do after the setback the chaos the failure the, the horror. How do you how do you get back up again? And that is the only only a question that you can answer. How did you? Um, what were the strategies? How did you do? How did you get over? How did you overcome that pain that that you all dealt with? I think I'm still you know I'm still dealing with it. This is sure. certainly not through the grief totally. Um, but again, I think um, by being open by sharing the story. By being close to my surrogate parents, Nicole and Kane, and, and, you know, us talking about it openly instead of shoving it all away. And both my husband and myself, you know, we just, when the emotions come, we let them out. To share the shit. Share the shit. And, you know, my husband... You know, last week or a couple of weeks ago, was at a Christmas party for the, for his job, and he's the boss. And you know, there are all these children running around with their families, and you know, having fun. And he just broke, you know, in front of his his guys. You know, and that's really a tough thing for you know in this very machoy world that he lives in. Um, but it, actually, everyone was really good about it, you know, because 
again, when you share the reality, then I think people are more open and understanding, you know, and, and that's really important, I think, just to be able to, to share the, the shit, as you say, yeah. and, and, and be real, be real. I think share the shit is a better ring to it than share the reality. That might, I don't know if that one's going to yes, I- sell as many books. <laughs> No, no, you definitely had all to a winner there. <laughs> Lisa, what yeah. uh, what question should I be asking that I'm not asking? Oh, uh, that's a good one. I think we've covered a heck of a lot of ground. Um, I think it's like it's it's well, my passion now um, is trying, like you, uh, is to impact as many people's lives to give them the the belief in themselves, so that they can actually fulfil the potential that they were meant to be living, and so that we're not living so reserved and so scared of failure and so scared to move or to take chances. Um, you know, we've got to take life by the ball, so to speak, and we've got to go at it with everything. Go all in on whatever it is that you're passionate about, whatever your dream is, and then just find a way. You don't always know the path that's going to light ahead of you. All you know is the next step sometimes, and you're you're in complete darkness, and all you've got is the next step. But when you take that next step, you can be sure that the, the following step will also be there, you know. And and that's how it all sort of opens up. And being open to growth and change, and surrounding your people with you know with with people who who are where you want to be or can help you get there, you know. Your tribe is so important. You know, the, the people that you hang out with, with and I'm, I'm probably preaching to the converted because anyone who listens to this podcast is probably someone who wants to develop their their skills and their minds and their, their body. Um, and that is just so, so important. So many of us surround ourselves with people, you know, sometimes you can't get away from them. They're your family members or whatever telling you you can't do stuff. You know, if, if people are telling you you can't do something, and you really want it, just use that as fuel for the fire. Use that to make the passion burn brighter. Use that as an excuse to show them, to prove them wrong. You know, there's nothing, you know, it might seem like a negative uh, thing really, but it's it's very motivating to be able to, to go and prove to someone that you told me I couldn't do it and here I am, I did it. Right. You know, and like with mum, for example, or when I was a young girl, um, young lady and I was in a very abusive relationship for a number of years and told by this guy who was an amazing athlete that I was useless. I had no skills. I had no abilities. Um, and I was useless at everything. I couldn't run. I was hopeless and got this message for five years. Wait, you were a little girl or you were in a relationship? No, no. This is when I was a young lady. So in my twenties okay. with, with a guy and you have to read the book to, to hear that story. But we, it actually came to a head when we were crossing the Libyan Desert, which was a, an illegal crossing expedition that we did across the Libyan Desert. And in the middle of this, he decides to leave me. And that was a real deep, dark turning point in my life uh, where I said, you know, and no more, and no more. Is anyone going to treat me like that? And, you know, what I've done consequently after that, a lot of that, a lot of the races that I started doing um, after that relationship ended and I survived that expedition was to prove him wrong, 
was to prove that I was a good athlete and that I was strong and that I was tough. And, you know, that, that came from a negative place really, but didn't really matter. It got the results, you know. Yeah. It, and um, one of the reasons I wanted to run through Death, uh, Death Valley uh, was because he'd cycled through Death Valley and was always going, you know, I've cycled through Death Valley in the middle of summer. Well, you know. 13 years later, I ran through Death Valley in the middle of summer, you know, <laughs> twice. That's right. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, when and when you do something like that finally, you do look back and going, you know, see, you were wrong, you know. You were wrong. I am not useless. And that was a good feeling, you know, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Lisa, where would you want people to learn more about you? And obviously I'm going to put the links on there, but uh, where would you want people to follow you and learn more about you? Yeah, I'd love them to, to hop over to my website at lisatamati.com. Um, so that's T-A-M-A-T-I. I'm all over Facebook and, and Instagram um, at Lisa Tamati. I have, um, you know, if you don't mind me mentioning, I've got an online running uh, coaching academy. So we train hundreds of athletes from all around the, the world and, and running. Um, and we also, you know, do the mindset stuff like you do. And and epigenetic testing is another area that we're heavily into. Um, so we have a whole lot of stuff going. And I'd love people to check out the books. Um, you know, I've got Running to, running Hot, Running to Extremes, and the new one that's coming out in March uh, 2020 is Relentless, the story with my mum. It, it will be on Amazon in America, so it's not going to be released until in America until later on, but it will be on Amazon in America. So um, you can be able to grab it there or via my website. So, yeah, that would be really grateful if anyone uh, wanted to check out any of that stuff or just reach out to me. You can find me there or contact me via those, those links. Wow, that's awesome. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate that conversation. It was awesome, Dr. Rob, and I love the work that you're doing. Um, I'm going to share some of your books and get them out there to my audience as well. And, um, yeah, I don't think this is the last that we'll be talking, I hope. <laughs> Cheers, Lisa. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.